Second reading this morning, I'm going to rewind a few verses uh, and begin in John chapter 4, verses, verse 27, running through verse 45. That's John chapter 4, verse 27, running through verse 45. Hear the word of the Lord. Just then, the dis- his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, look up, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if your Thanksgiving was anything like mine, you probably ate too much. I mean, really, the kindest thing that we could do for each other from now until January would be to deny each other food. You could invite people over for dinner, but you would serve them water and celery, and it would be a great blessing. I don't see that happening, however. Instead, my guess is what we'll do is we will stuff ourselves with cookies and cakes and rich foods from now until all of the presents are unwrapped and Then during that quiet week after Christmas, most of us will be busy cleaning up the fruitcakes and the cookie trays one nibble at a time because we can't let good food go to waste. 
I won Joan Clover's Derby Pie in the Deacon's Pie Auction this past week. About four years ago, I had my first Derby Pie at a diner in Louisville, Kentucky. My son Calvin and I were on our way back from Memphis, Tennessee. And I'll tell you what, that pie knocked me out. It was a very memorable experience. Derby pie is a, a local favorite. It's a specialty that people in Louisville bring out during Derby week. The name is even copyrighted. It's rich and it's nutty and it's chocolatey. And I'm just crazy about it. Of course, you can't buy it around here to save your life. And that's why I couldn't let it pass me by when it appeared in the pie auction. So I took Jones Derby Pie with me to Brooklyn for Thanksgiving dinner. And it was a huge hit. I only got one small sliver with some vanilla ice cream. But that was the capstone in a feast large enough for several full-size meals. That's kind of how I feel about our reading this morning from the Gospel of John. A feast large enough for several full-sized meals. It would be easy to preach five sermons on just this morning's reading. I'm not going to do that, however. We will finish on time. Instead, this morning, I want to focus on just one feature of our reading. I want to talk about conversion. And I want to talk about evangelism, which leads to conversion. Because our reading this morning is the first time in the Gospel of John where we see conversions happen. Now last week we talked a little bit about repentance, which is a related idea. The first recorded sermon of Jesus begins with the word repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 4.17. The word in Greek that is translated for us as repent is metanoiate, which means literally to change your mind. Change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we've only recently survived the presidential election. I hate to bring it up. I mean, maybe it's not over yet. Jill Stein has got this recount going on. But in this campaign, there were a lot of people polling the electorate to figure out what they were thinking. And late in the campaign, there was some perplexity about those who were still undecided. There was this guy in the red sweater, Ken Bone, apparently the last man in America to make up his mind about who he was going to uh, vote for. And by the way, Mr. Bone is mum about which lever he pulled, so the mystery remains. But imagine the situation if a Clinton supporter changed his mind and went for Trump, or if a Trump supporter changed her mind and went for Clinton... Metanoiete is the word that you would use in Greek for that situation. They changed their mind. You might say they repented of their former opinions and adopted a new outlook. Another word that we use for that change of mind is conversion. And during the political campaigns, during political campaigns, parties spend a lot of time and money and effort to convert Supporters of the other party 
to become supporters of their own party. They try to turn red states into blue states and blue states into red states, one voter at a time. What I want to say is, is that the work of the church is a campaign. It's a campaign of conversion. Evangelism is a campaign that promotes repentance and conversion. And here in the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, we have the first campaign rally for Jesus. The first group conversion to a movement that in the earliest days was simply called the way. We now call it the church. Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well begins with Jesus asking her for a drink. We read that last week. Jesus asks for a drink of water, but all of the social and racial and religious customs of that time forbid Jesus, a Jewish man, from speaking to, much less taking a drink of water from, this Samaritan woman. Ah, but Jesus asks anyway. And in doing so, he signals that his campaign, his movement, his way, his church is going to be different from anything that has happened before. In the church, old barriers are torn down. In the church, old divisions are healed. Slave or free, it doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile, nobody cares. Woman or man, it makes no difference. Everyone is invited to follow Jesus. After Jesus breaks all of the social conventions and approaches this woman and initiates the conversation with her, what comes to light is the sorry state of this woman's home life. This woman has had five husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. How Jesus knows this, the text doesn't tell us, but the woman, after Jesus has revealed her secrets, utters one of my favorite straight lines in all of Scripture. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, (laughs) There's something very strange about this man who's shown up at the well. He's offered her living water, water that is supposed to bubble up inside of her forever. And now he seems to know all about her past life, her secret life. But notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about her sin. He doesn't accuse her of being a sinner. He simply states the fact. And it's clear from the facts alone that something is out of whack in her life. Now notice this. When Jesus brings her living situation to light, the woman at the well shifts the focus away from herself and away from her lifestyle and begins to talk about theology. Rather than letting the conversation linger on what's going on at home... She tries to deflect Jesus' attention by rehashing an old argument between Jews and Samaritans. Which is the right place to worship? Is it here on this mountain or is it over there in Jerusalem? This is a very important observation. And it is amazing how acute the gospel writer is to catch this nuance. One of 
the refrains that Hannah Kirsten and I keep repeating in our meetings with the leaders of our small group Bible studies is that our goal here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church is transformation, not information. Our goal is changed hearts, not full heads. We want to see lives changed because they have encountered the living God. That's transformation. And that transformation begins to happen when what's going on in our lives, when what's actually buried in our heart bubbles up and comes to light. Now, for some people, that can be really uncomfortable. Having a light shine into all of the dark corners of our lives and our hearts, well, that's something we enjoy less than going to the dentist. Very uncomfortable. And a great strategy for avoiding the discomfort that must precede any spiritual transformation, the discomfort of letting the Word of God judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart as Hebrews 4.12 says that it will. A great strategy for avoiding that discomfort of transformation and exposure to the light is to focus on the information. How about we argue about the mysteries of predestination and free will rather than honestly asking ourselves, what is God calling me to do today? We argue about infant baptism rather than believer baptism, and we avoid asking, what's standing between me and a closer walk with God? We speculate on who will make it to heaven. Will there be any Presbyterians there? Are the Mormons going to make it? And somehow we forget to ask, am I right with God? Information. Sure, it's important. Don't get me wrong. I love information. I believe that Christians should be the smartest people on the planet. But we have to be really careful about not letting the information distract us from personal transformation. We have to be really careful about not posing as pious people hiding behind a lot of empty religious talk. Do you understand what I'm saying? What's ultimately important is not having the correct answer to the question, where should we worship, in Samaria or in Jerusalem? What's ultimately important is to recognize he who is standing directly in front of you, Jesus Christ, and to follow him. Seeing him for who he is and then saying to him, Lord Jesus, lead the way. But let me get back to what I want to talk about in this passage, conversion and evangelism. Let me talk a little bit about the disciples who have a funny role in this story. While Jesus is having his conversation with the woman at the well, the disciples are off in the city buying food. They come back, they find Jesus sitting at the well talking to this Samaritan woman, and they're very surprised. They marveled, is what our translation says, but the disciples don't say anything. They don't challenge Jesus. They don't dare question him, even though what he's doing is very strange for that time and that place. The disciples come back, and Jesus starts talking to them about evangelism. 
He has just finished an evangelistic conversation with this Samaritan woman. That conversation will come to fruition by the end of the story. Many people are converted. Many people repent. Many people come to believe in Jesus, which is what evangelism is all about, which is what the church is supposed to be all about. Jesus has this evangelistic conversation with the woman at the well. She goes back into town and she spreads the news. And then a few verses later, we have this report of this first mass conversion of people coming to Jesus. But between those two events... Between the woman leaving the well to go back into town and the woman returning from the city to bring a whole group of Samaritans out with her to see Jesus, Jesus has a little, I don't know, pep talk with the disciples. Lift up your eyes, he says to them, and see that the fields are white for harvest. All around you, Jesus is saying, there is a field of evangelism and it is ripe and it is ready for the harvest. And now is the time to bring in those crops. And no doubt the disciples are thinking to themselves, what do you mean? We are in the middle of Samaria. There are no good Jews here. Why would you want to bring a Samaritan into the kingdom of God? And that woman that you were just with, she's been married five times. And the guy she's living with now is not even her husband. Is that the kind of harvest that you want, Jesus? Yeah. That is precisely the harvest that Jesus wants. Jesus wants Samaritans. He wants people whose lives are Out of whack. Jesus said that he came into this world to seek and to save those who are lost. If you're not lost, you don't need Jesus. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those of us who are in the church, those of us who've been hanging around the church a long time, those of us who are interested in seeing our churches thrive, need to constantly remind ourselves of this basic truth. Our call to evangelize the neighborhood, our call to evangelize the world, is not a call to gather up all of the Christians. It's not a call to collect all of the Presbyterians under one roof. It's not a call to round up all of the people who look like us and sound like us. The business of evangelism is the business of conversion and repentance. It's the business of helping sick people get to the doctor. It's the business of finding out who who is outside of the family and inviting them to come and see that the Lord is good. A good church, a healthy church, a church that has a future, a church that makes a difference is a church that will have a large number of Samaritans. A good church, a healthy church, a church that has a future that is making a difference is a church that will always have a large number of people whose lives are still out of whack. People who were already born again, people who were already spirit-filled, people who were already well down the road of sanctifications, those people are welcome in this church. Sure, we'll 
we'll let them come in. We'll give them a place to sit and we'll give them work to do. But the people that we're really interested in reaching are those who don't know Jesus yet. People who are wandering around in the darkness hoping to see some kind of light. People who have a heartfelt longing for God. They haven't put that name to it yet. They don't really understand their own longings. They don't know what it means. Those are the people we need to reach. Those are the people who are in this field of harvest that is white with readiness. Well, let's talk about Samaria again. Jesus is in Samaria, as we saw last week, because he has an appointment there. The normal thing for him to do as a Jew would be to have gone around Samaria, either across the Jordan River or along the Mediterranean Sea, but he has an appointment. And so he's in Samaria. He's in Samaria because he needs to meet this woman at the well. And I hope you understand that Samaria is a tough place to preach the gospel. It's an even tougher place to plant a church. You'd have to be crazy to plant a church in in Samaria. It'd be like trying to plant a church in, in Saudi Arabia or in Portland, Oregon or in Brooklyn, New York. And yet Jesus... There in the middle of Samaria says the fields are white for the harvest. Lift up your eyes. Can't you see? People outside of the household of God just waiting to be brought in. Evangelism is not about gathering together like-minded people. Evangelism is about bringing the good news of Jesus to people who don't yet understand that good news. And after we bring it to them, then we just wait and see what God does with it. Some sow and some reap. Some scatter the seeds and some gather in the crops. Jesus said, I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. I mean, I hope you understand that we did not invent this gospel. It's a story that has been told time and time again by people who came before us. And it's only sometimes on the 100th hearing or the 1,000th hearing that the story finally begins to crystallize and make sense in someone's life. And so... The person who sows and the person who reaps aren't always the same person. And that's okay. Just as long as people hear good news about Jesus. This Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the four weeks before Christmas, it is a season of preparation for the coming of Christmas. And during this season, as Christmas approaches, many people who are not part of the church family, 
are open to being invited to church. So bring them along next week. Invite a Samaritan. Go find a woman at the well. If you don't know any, you need to get out a little more because they're out there. They're waiting for the gospel. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do honor you and we bless your name and we thank you that your word stands the test of time. We pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word might find root in our heart and convert us. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would also be doers. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you all now to stand.